Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. we got lots of weightlifting and powerlifting barbell courses coming up, so check the schedule out. And this podcast can also be found on the website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. I'm good. How are you? Doing well. I was going to say Ontario, Canada, but I thought that that's just... You should just, have done it. No, no, I've done that before, gone for it. yeah. Yeah, we've done a lot of things before. Just commit, though. I feel like there's a chance we might have a Canadian listener, and I didn't want to piss he or she off. Although we're, we're super nice, though. This is true. It wouldn't matter. This they, You'd probably apologize to me. We would. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> we also have John Flagg who is an athletic trainer and the wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, which is also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. How you doing, John? Doing well. Feel pretty good today. Oh, good. You were not yeah. doing good on other days, but today is a good day. Yeah, I don't have the sniffles anymore. You can hear it through the mic every time I make a sentence. Oh, no, I do this time. You had the sniffles? Oh, yeah. The, for a while. Jared did during the Q&A the other day. He kept saying sorry every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a polite Canadian <laughs> case in point. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> we're also very excited to welcome onto the show, Rich Severin, who is a physical therapist and certified cardiovascular and pulmonary specialist and currently working on a PhD in rehab science at the University of Illinois, Chicago, with a focus on cardiorespiratory physio physiology and obesity. Rich, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, Quinn, thanks for having me on here. And um, I'm really excited for this podcast. Uh, so are we. So Rich is going to be doing a webinar for us that he and Jared have been organizing titled Cardiopulmonary Considerations in Orthopedic Rehabilitation. And this one's going to be pretty cool in that there's going to be a live demonstration with uh, yours truly, right, Rich, while Rich is out here in California. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. a little twist there. It's, yeah. I'm excited about that. You're going to... Uh, you'll have to tell me what I'm going to have to actually do. You're not going to make me look stupid on camera, right? I, I don't think I should. I probably shouldn't tell you. It's true. I should be a little bit true. of a surprise. This no, is true. Fine. I, I, fine. I, no, I think, fine. Well, I guess legally, I, legally, I have to disclose it. It's I'll, anything. Everything you'll do will be will I'll, be safe. I'll sign Just something. I'll sign invasive. something. No, I'll sign yeah. something. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can do whatever you want um, to me. I, we so, have that in right. We have that recorded. It's now, uh, so. yeah. No, I'm telling you. I'm serious. Yeah. 
so so we wanted to get rich on the podcast to dive into some of the topics that he'll be covering in the webinar but before we do that rich can you tell our six six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led to the current professional interest that that you're doing right now and ultimately what's uh, obviously the pinnacle of your career being here on the clinical athlete podcast <laughs> A, a, a pinnacle, maybe, maybe a pinnacle. There you go. Peak. One of the peaks. Yeah. Um, one of the peaks. One of the peaks. Um, so it's, it's actually kind of interesting. You know, I, I've told people this before that, uh, you know, when I started into this profession, um, going you know, to the PT school in the University of Miami, I had no intention of doing really anything remotely to what I'm doing now. I had planned on working with strictly with athletes. I was an athlete myself. Uh, my only experiences with physical therapy and rehab were in sports and orthopedics. Um, I didn't know if PTs did anything regarding what I'm doing with exercise testing, like some kind of D-level physiology. And uh, I had a really good mentor uh, and professor down in Miami, a guy named Larry Cahalan, who kind of opened um, and exposed me to this area of practice and research that PTs do this, and they do it really well. Uh, especially internationally in other countries. You can talk about that a little bit too. Um, and then I had another professor down in Miami, Merrill Cohen, to kind of further confirm that, you know, this is an area of practice for me. Um, specifically with the stuff that I'm doing in uh, my two, I guess, lines of research kind of that I have now, one with the risk factor screening and PT practice and the other and uh, respiratory muscle physiology, uh, the vital stuff and the heart hypertension stuff really kind of came out um, from my experiences finishing a cardiopalm residency in Wisconsin and then um, practicing in an orthopedic residency um, while I was going through ortho residency in Chicago, just seeing that how, you know, I thought, you know, even though I had some experiences, obviously, as a student, like working with patients in an outpatient setting, ran into a course like hypertensive patients, but I was like, that's that was in a very low socioeconomic, you know, setting north philadelphia patients didn't have like routine access to care um you know so like well maybe that's just an, an anomaly in a certain sense and then um you know left a cardiopalm residency where you know resting blood pressures obviously and exercising blood pressures set you know front and center and then um so but then when i was in chicago i, I would see these this, basically the same kind of patients over and over again patients with you know, obesity, patients with hypertension, patients with diabetes. I'm like, this is a lot more common um, than I realized. And uh, I started diving into the literature and uh, yeah. And then, you know, obviously came up with the Vitals or Vitals kind of hashtag and campaign. And uh, that's become very successful. So that's, it kind of came from my experiences, um, you know, just as a student where that was heavily emphasized you know, went through a residency where it was heavily emphasized and then transitioned that into um, practice. And then my obesity research stuff like has come just from, again, kind of a combination of my background. So having a cardiopulm, you know, specialization residency, working with an orthopedic population and then doing a little bit of research with our bariatric surgery team. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really unique population because I, I see patients on the far downstream side of uh, lifestyle disease. So these are patients who don't exercise a lot, patients who have a lot of other issues which lead to their, you know, morbid obesity. I have patients who are 600 pounds, 700 pounds, BMIs in the 80s, 90s. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a, a narrative in, in the profession that, well, 
you know, one, these patients all have hypertension, all have diabetes, all can't do anything. That's also I'm finding is not exactly true. Um, there's a lot more heterogeneity with what they're able to do. And two, that these patients just like, just need to lose weight and that's all they need to do. And like, well, you know, it's a little bit of a tougher task for someone who's, you know, 500 pounds above their expected weight, you know? So what are you going to do for that patient besides just tell them to lose weight? You're going to find something, you know, a little bit more, um, what's going to fit with what they, what they've got going on. So, and then learning more about some of the breathing issues they've had. Um, and how their physiological responses to exercise are a little bit different. That also kind of, um, you know, cued some interest. And that's led to my, uh, my current dissertation project we can talk about later. But yeah, it's, it's been a kind of a, an interesting, interesting path to say the least. Well, and what's important to me, you know, some of the, some of our listeners who are working with what they would consider the athletic population maybe has a different view of, how they're managing, you know, cardiopulmonary, cardi- cardiovascular things, you know, these, yeah. these types of screenings and that you came out with a paper recently, uh, lead author on the paper titled outpatient physical therapist attitudes towards and behaviors in cardiovascular disease screening a national survey. Yeah. And I'd like you to dive in a little bit about why you did that. What what question were you looking for, and then what did you find? Yeah, there. Uh, so you know, kind of similar to the the story I'd mentioned that you know I I you know I had some experience as a student where I was running into patients with really high blood pressures, uncontrolled. Um, I was seeing it again in in residency and just hearing from friends of mine. And I know it's one of those things like you may think something's a problem, but you don't really know the scope of the problem until you actually get some real data. So I was limited to just personal anecdotes. And if I'm really going to try to provide a solution, I have to find out what's the actual scope of the problem. So we decided that a national survey would be the, would be the you know, right approach. There was some previous data published by Ethel Freeze um, back in 2002. Obviously, things in the profession have changed. And back then, there weren't as many PTs practicing direct access. So I thought that was also important to see, like, how has that changed? Right now, now that we're like frontline providers, um, it's also like, you know, and at that time we ran the survey 14 years, uh, 14, 15 years after she launched her survey. So obviously our prevalence of hypertension has also changed, right? And the prevalence of obesity. So uh, that led to it. And, um, you know, and I also wanted as large a sample as I possibly could. Uh, her, her study was a great study. It was limited primarily just to clinical instructors who were affiliated with her university. I wanted just to survey the, the profession nationally uh, and get as many responses as I possibly could. Fortunately, enough people decided to, to volunteer their time and go through our survey. Um, and what we found was was pretty pretty interesting. Um, one, the, the risk factor prevalence in, in outpatient PTs was pretty alarming. Um, I think most, most PTs reported uh, that at least half of their half or more of their current caseload had patients with moderate to greater risk or diagnosed cardiovascular disease. Um, the average age, or the I mean, if you if you kind of break off the age demographics, most people are seeing an older population, older than forty six. Um, so then that's also a bit of a risk factor in itself, just having older age. Um, and more and more people are just encountering new patients. I think like 30% reported encountering at least 
one patient daily with high high risk factors. And then the shocking thing is, despite all that, how you know the the high prevalence of risk factors, like fifteen percent of the profession, um, or that survey. I guess I can't say the profession, but that sample, um, which was close to about two thousand, we had eighteen hundred and twelve responses uh, just from outpatient. We have some others from other settings, which we're going to analyze soon and publish, um, that, uh, yeah, 15% taken on every patient, which I thought was just like, if you look at just like what people are self-reporting they're encountering and then what they're actually doing, it's just like, we've got some areas to, to work on here. Um, we found that, uh, those who do routinely screen, uh, a perception of importance, was a, was a was a strong factor for why they decided to do it, as well as having a clinical policy. And the other side was, uh, for those who didn't, it was they didn't perceive it to be important, and they didn't have a policy. And um, those were the, so it's basically the opposite. So those who did had something they could use, right? They felt it was important, and those who didn't didn't think it was important. So which which is good and bad, right? It's bad that obviously people don't think these things are important. Um, but it's just an opportunity really to educate, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, beliefs are malleable to a certain degree, right? And we're, we're dealing with an educated population here. We're dealing with, you know, clinicians. Um, what I did find interesting was uh, going through a, uh, and we published, it's in the, it's in the paper. If you went through a clinical residency or fellowship, you were more likely to screen, like exceedingly more likely. If you have practiced for a longer duration, you were more likely to screen. And um, if you saw an older and a more, um, uh, I guess a more sick population of patients with a higher risk profile, you are also more likely to screen, like exceedingly more likely, um, which also speaks to the same kind of narratives we've seen a lot of things that the more often you see something on the forefront, right? Like the more likely you to do it. So if you're seeing work of a higher risk population, you're more likely to perceive it to be important and more likely to do these behaviors. So which again speaks to if we can really demonstrate to people that you are seeing patients that need to have these things screened, they'll probably end up doing it. And maybe a post-professional residency program is is the avenue to do that, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's this like dedication to continue learning. So it, it's interesting. It's interesting. The paper is open access too for everybody listening. Yep. Um, yeah, cost is two grand. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny how that works. That's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, yeah. one of the other barriers to to screening was perceived lack of time. Yep. Thirty seven percent perceived lack of time. Yeah. And I, I think that segues into the question of why vitals are vital. But let's say that you. We have a clinician who is working with a young, what seemingly healthy population that you would, you would deem a low risk just on their general demographic. And they, and the clinician feels pressed for time. I know you yeah. get this question a lot. Yep. How do you address it? How do you address that question? Is your argument, you actually do have time and you should be screening everyone as just kind of like, uh, an initial rebuttal yeah yeah so um i think i've posted a couple of videos of this how how little time it takes um you know we're talking about two minutes i mean i train first year pt students to take blood pressures and 
I've done it at now three universities. Um, takes the, you know, first year PT students can do it in two minutes, a manual blood pressure. Um, you've got time, right? So that's, that's one thing, but obviously people are like, well, I'm really pressed for time here. I'm seeing 30 minute evals, no way to do it. Um, automatic blood pressure, um, devices are as reliable and as accurate and are actually less prone to some user errors, um, and less prone to white coat hypertension, uh, than a manual measurement. And you can do that in the waiting room. So the patient could take it or a medical assistant or a tech could take it. Um, so, and there's, there's clinics that do this. I have a colleague of mine down in Kentucky, Matt Lee of Corked Kentucky orthopedic rehab team. I used to work for um, them. You did? I did. You know, Matt? You know uh, Matt? I know the name. I know the name. Yeah, I, it was like five years guy. ago. Yeah. 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 He's a guy. So, um, he, yeah, they have a, they have a policy that I think their techs or their, uh, assistants take it and then the PT interprets it. So that's one way to do it. Um, or we could have the patients do it. Maybe you're a one man show, one woman show. Um, you know, they could take it and you interpret it. And if it's off, maybe you recheck it again. Um, the other side is, you know, the way I frame it, you know, it's, it's a systems review, right? And there is no way to assess if someone's blood pressure and heart rate and other resting hemodynamics are safe without assessing it, right? If someone came to you with like a, like a, like a ankle fracture or, you know, or a suspected fracture, right? You would, you would screen those things, right? To make sure they're appropriate to begin exercise. It's the same kind of concept for blood pressure and heart rate, right? You, and the only way to do that is blood pressure and heart rate measurement. Um, and there's actually papers that show that you, you can't, you can't go by, like it published specifically for PTs in a PT population. You cannot determine blood pressure from visual observation or review of a medical record. Um, and then broadly, you know, there's patients, you know, who I mean, maybe even the other argument gets like, well, if they're on hypertensive medications, no problem, right? Like they're medicated, they're good to go. 50% of patients on hypertensive medications aren't controlled, aren't at their goal blood pressure. Um, they also don't necessarily affect exercise blood pressures either. There's another argument I'm saying, you know, not only should we be taking resting blood pressures, which are taking it during exercise as well and see how they're responding and how they're recovering too. And the other side is, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's just so many reasons to do it. And the other, and if, if a patient, God forbid, like has an acute event or something goes awry and you didn't take a measurement at baseline, like, you know, though that's rare, right? Very rare to happen. It only takes one incident, you know, for you, for you as a professional, like your professional career to change drastically or be come to a, a pretty sudden end if you didn't, were doing your due diligence. Um, so even though, in, you know, an athletic population, it's pretty low risk to have someone with risk factors. Um, I have, I have friends of mine, even 16 years old where athletes have had, you know, kidneys were clear, heart was clear, had hypertension. Like, and it's asymptomatic. There's, I mean, even at super extremes, it's asymptomatic. So it's, I think we've got two minutes to make sure that our patients are safe. So considering a lot of the other things we do in practice, which is not a good argument um, necessarily, but there's a lot of things we do in practice, which are exceedingly um, bigger wastes of time, I think, than screening the cardiovascular system. So 
Yeah. Is that is that the rebuttal to those two biggest barriers? You explaining that you do have the time, it's fast and and it's important because there could still be something there. You can't necessarily yeah. pick that up from the subjective history alone. Yeah. So it's not, not, not even not necessarily. You can't. Like it's it's impossible. You can't do it from the subjective history or the medical record review. Um, and then there's other strategies you can take to do it. Like you don't. I mean, there's ways to. Do, if if time's really a big issue, there are strategies to implement to make it more to fit your 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 clinic situation. Um, there's there's ways to fit it in. You know. Um, yeah. This the vitals are vital campaign. How, how has this grown from you? How is this something that's that you've been able to to push and and uh, make a dent in the perception? Yeah, you know, that, and that's actually been kind of cool to see. Um, there was something that I started back in 2015, which is a kind of a catchy phrase. We made it into a hashtag, um, made it into a T-shirt drive, um, and it's kind of caught wind by some pretty high-profile people. I mean, I think Karen Litzy was the first. Or no, Chris Johnson, I think, actually, back in like 2016, maybe even earlier, had me on a podcast. We're talking about it then. Karen Litzy had me. I'm on, on yours, obviously. Therapy Insiders. Um, it's, you know, that I, it's really benefited from people um, with a much broad... Like I, people, you know, I, I say this to people, I don't have the biggest reach, I think, individually, but I have a lot of friends who do. Um, and I, I, you know, this, this campaign's definitely been aided by people, um, friends of mine, colleagues of mine who, you know, who, who found this stuff important too. um, prehab guys ran something for it as well. So it's just been kind of, I think that like social media has definitely been, um, a benefit to that campaign. Um, the newer generation of students, uh, that's where it's really kind of caught wind. Like students now we're really kind of pushing it. And uh, that's good to see because that's where I think a lot of the change is probably going to happen. It's it's harder to change people who've been in practice for many years. And interesting enough, our paper actually shows people who've been practicing for longer actually tend to take it more often, which is which was kind of interesting. That but, surprised me. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we also think it, it may be who we've sampled because we sampled orthopedic section members. Mm. And there was also a higher prevalence of people with t- transitional or DPTs. So I'm thinking it was people who practiced for a while, for a while and then went back and like further ed- education. So there's, these are people are very committed to staying on top of their practice. So I think that that that's what explains that kind of interesting relationship. Um, but yeah, so the students, you know, new grads, and then social media has been a re- really big push. And then recently we've been able to, uh, you know, the first first motion I put in as a board of directors member for the cardiopalm section is to bring it officially under the section. So it's a, now it's a section sponsored campaign, uh, which has allowed us to have um, release of some funds to create those videos. Um, so like the whole, the whole vision, there's like three, three stages I have to this campaign. The first one was to raise awareness and identify the problem. We've done that. I think, I think we've done a pretty good job of, you know, people know about the campaign they've heard maybe or seen something from it. Um, you know, or maybe there are professors using it or talking about it in, in 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 their courses. I think even like this past past spring, in like four different states, there were at state association meetings, there were people referencing the Vitals or Vital campaign, which I thought was crazy because I wasn't I wasn't there. It was completely unsolicited, and it's at the state level, which I was like, that's that's kind of cool. Um, 
So we've raised awareness, we've identified the problem, right, with our research, my research, Sarah Arena's research, Ali Alvarati's research. Um, And now we're in the the stage of providing solutions, right? Because, like, just talking about a problem doesn't, what what is that, that, what's what's the use of that, right? You got to provide some solutions. So we've we've produced those videos now, which are completely free, um, accessible by anyone. They're on on YouTube for the CardioPalm section. Um, no advertisements, no nothing, no monetization. Like you can log in and use it. Um, and we go over interpretation, how to do it, um, how to calibrate all those things. But basically we found those issues from our research, from talking to people and then created something that would work for them. And then we're currently working on a paper, which should come out hopefully in the next couple of months, listing decision-making, um, algorithms for clinicians. So that's coming hopefully down the pipeline. It's it's in review right now. I can't talk too much about it. Um, but yeah, that's coming down the pipeline. And then the third is getting you know PTs to do it during exercise and getting reimbursement for hypertension. But that's the whole, that's like five, 10 years down the road. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, and the cool thing is it's, we've put, I've put, you know, very little money into it directly. The videos were self-funded from our t-shirt sales and the courses we ran for the cardiopalm section. So um, that's something I've been very proud of that we've been able to, it's a, it's a product of the profession that's for the profession in a certain sense. And I've just been kind of been the facilitator for it um, or maybe the catalyst in a certain sense. So, yeah. That's really awesome. It, yeah. Breathing, respiratory yeah. screening. Oh boy. Is that part of this conversation? Uh, I mean, vitals technically would include respiratory rate, you know, and some people throw pulse oximetry in there. Uh, breathing, breathing is, is the other, my other line. And it's really, really where my, my dissertation research is, is more focused. Uh, breathing in our profession, I think is, um, it's like, what's, what's the other term that gets thrown out there a lot? Um, it's, 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 it's a very complex process that gets, there's, there's a lot of, you know, so a lot of a lot of complexity and a lot of vagueness in a certain sense, ambiguity that I think opens the door for some very loose interpretations of what's kind of going on. Um, but yeah, breathing's interesting. Well, I think because it's obviously so important, you can you can spin your narrative in certain ways to say, you know, oh, well, holy shit, you breathe twenty thousand times a day if you're doing it. If you're doing it wrong, you know, imagine all the dysfunction and all these things where you're, you're coming from a side of, of seeing actual, actual breathing dysfunction and what that looks like versus somebody who's completely healthy and you're, you know, taking them through some, some breathing drills, Uh, breathing dysfunction for you. What does that mean in the, in the sense of, of in the clinical sense for you? And then what are the myths? that you're seeing currently oh man we're, we're, how much time you got so i could i could go on I've a been, rant i've for been waiting days. for this this is this i is could go on a rant for days i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna name names here um uh, i'm gonna name names here uh but uh let's just say and, and i think a lot of this has to this this issue also has to do with um how our profession and our our, our specialties within our profession don't communicate as much as they should Right. Um, because I think if you had some cardiopalm, more cardiopalm PTs involved in some of these spaces, um, 
you know, some of these myths would be eradicated pretty quickly, um, you know, or at least maybe a little bit more nuanced, a little bit sprinkled with a little bit more evidence, right? A little more seasoning of evidence. Um, so uh, breathing dysfunction to me uh, is an identifiable, you know, weakness of the respiratory muscles. Um, that's like probably the one, you'll, you know, I see more often. Um and that, you know, PTs can actually assess. And that can only really be assessed using uh, a test that assesses respiratory muscle pressure generation, right? So that could be, um, you know, what you're going to do in a couple months is the test of radical mental respiratory muscle endurance. Oh, Lord. Or, yeah, it's really easy. Um, basically, we can look at how much pressure you can generate from a single maximal breath in. Um and track that over time to see, you know, basically it's a 30 second wind gate test for breathing um, that's done in, you know, not 30 seconds, but in, you know, a single breath in. Uh, and then seeing how you fall along normative values. Most people that you're going to see in a clinic are, are not going to have breathing dysfunction by, by that definition. Another one would be like a significant, significant reduction in pulmonary volumes like lung volumes um, or airflow, air, like airway restriction, like an, an asthmatic. Um, and the other would be changes to ventilatory responses to exercise, uh, which PTs really don't do too often. So I, I find it interesting because, you know, this term is thrown around breathing dysfunction, dysfunctional breathing, you're doing your breathing wrong. Um, and there are, there are cases where that can happen. Right. Like I, I see these patients. I'm doing research with these patients um, and there are measures to assess these things really easy. And the problem is like those measures aren't being used. So it's just being thrown out arbitrarily from like hands on assessments, like looking at people. I'm like, you can't. I mean, how, I mean, how, I mean, breathing is so it, it, it's it's it, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to determine breathing dysfunction objectively just by putting your hands on someone's chest and and just feeling they're moving like yeah, that, that's too subjective it's not it doesn't really tell you anything um and it doesn't give you any data that you can use to assess um to improve either i mean it's, it's just there's so many more things that you can you could utilize that have good evidence um and yeah yeah i i mean i <laughs> it's a big problem yeah so, you, so you're saying it's more than just breathing into your stomach and breathing into your shoulders yeah and i'll say too <laughs> that like People say that like your pattern is wrong and like uh, there's a balloon. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, not going to name names here. Um, but yeah, it, it, those, those things that we see out there in practice, like they're probably doing, they are probably helping patients in a certain sense. Like if you, I mean, I use breathing, like a focus on your focusing on your breathing in practice. It's a great way to relax people. Like you're focusing on something that's rhythmic, that's intrinsic that's kind of calming um and that's great but are you in training their breathing from a 30 second one minute exposure to that probably not and the evidence for whether or not you can even entrain breathing rate in cadence and depth is is not super convincing either because it's such a it's it's a something that happens subconsciously throughout your entire life, which you start doing in the third trimester, like your breathing patterns you develop like happen in your in utero. 
um, like the neuro pathways are formed. Um, and we're finding that, you know, people, people say, well, I can look at their pattern and they're like, it's, I can, I can correct it, right? By giving them these cues. What you're probably actually doing is putting them into a relaxed state and then their brain is selecting a pattern in their, like a program basically in their brain associated with low threat. So, and, then, and there's some good evidence to suggest this, that when we're in high threat states like pain or anxiety, um, different areas of the respiratory control center kind of turn on in a certain sense. And this is a very overgeneralized explanation of very complex physiology. Um, but there's basically different regions of the respiratory control center, which can become active, um, you know, and you have different, you know, you know, depth, different rates, different patterns. Um, and though even within that pattern, there's nuances too, right? Cause it's, it's not like a fixed thing. It's, it changes almost breath to breath in some respects. Um, so, but you know, there's a generalized pattern for threat. There's a generalized pattern for relaxation. And all you're probably doing when those, you know, you're giving those cues is giving them, you know, allowing them to achieve a relaxed state and you're reducing the threat state. Um, and they assume a more normal quote unquote pattern of breathing. That's probably what's happening. And the great thing is like, that's effective. You don't have to make up these contrived explanations. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like saying that we're, we're bringing your anxiety, your threat levels down to allow you, your body to kind of assume a normal state of breathing. Like that's why, why, why is that not appealing enough? Like, why do we have to make up stuff? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, why do we have to make up assessments when there's tons there's tons of valid assessments are really cheap and easy to do like you don't have to make up something like the i don't know because the self-importance takes a hit after yeah it does probably yeah and i was just about to ask how you spin a a narrative that doesn't create actual anxiety because i think we've all seen that person that comes in and say oh you know somebody told me i don't breathe right and now i focus on my breathing all the time and i don't think i'm getting it right and I'm not getting better. And they, they kind of wind themselves up a little bit just because they're focusing so much on, I don't want to say minutia, but minutia. I I, I think, I think you hit hit a, a, you know, um, the nail on the head there. And that, and and that's like my approach to a lot of things with what I do in PT social media is that, um, because the populations I work with, where I came from as a, you know, as a child, young man, um, you know, with people that were spun and told, like that didn't have the tools to kind of discern nonsense from truth. And you're going to believe what your provider tells you, believe what you read online. And yeah, it just creates more problems. And that's, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. Um, and yeah, like I, I'm, yeah, that, so sorry, I went off a little bit of a side tangent there, but that's a, it is a big problem. People, you know, you know, you're, Someone in pain, right, is probably at a higher risk for becoming hypervigilant, right, and catastrophizing. And all you're doing is throwing not only gasoline with those narratives, you're putting C4 on those narratives, right? Um, and you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Like, it's what I don't get. Like, you don't have to make up those things. Like, there's, there's great evidence out there um, to support that. Like, you, you can just coaching them and telling them that, hey, like, we're just going to get you to relax a little bit and let, you know, kind of let you assume a more relaxed state. And you don't even have, you don't even have to touch on this contrived physiology either. Most patients aren't going to understand it anyway. 
like just relaxation versus stress and anxiety. Like people get that. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a problem. When you said throw C4 on it, my mind went to the energy drink and I was like, yeah, that would, <laughs> that would really the energy drink. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, it's an explosive too. Oh, well, they have a, they have an energy drink now. Oh, they, C4 really? comes in cans, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Oh my goodness. Whoa. We have a fridge full of them in our gym and I have <laughs> heart palpitations. I was about to say, yeah. feed your addiction input. Now, don't take any of those before our uh, assessments in, in Cali. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, Segwaying to your dissertation. So you mentioned yeah. that that is in the respiratory realm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with that? Yeah, yeah. So um, obesity and, and morbid obesity or class two obesity, depending on whatever definition we're using nowadays. Um, I, I'm working with patients undergoing bariatric surgery, so weight loss surgery. Um, again, which I think is a fascinating population for, for a lot of reasons. And, uh, and I think that's an area of practice, one that PT should probably be more involved in just because of some of the unique needs they have and uh, skills that we can provide to address those needs. Um, but in obesity, we find respiratory muscle weakness for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one, uh, we see a lower... So at the end of expiration, right, there is a little bit of air remaining in your lungs. You don't fully com- like collapse your lungs when you, when you breathe out, right? There's always a little bit of air remaining. Um, in obesity, because of the higher trunkal fat, we alter the force couple relationships between the outward pull of the chest wall and the inward pull of the lungs. Um, we basically reduce the outward pull because there's so much, there's more fat in the, in the trunk and abdomen, um, which creates a net greater increase pulling towards the, towards the lungs. So basically there's less air in the, in the lungs in an obese individual. They have lower volumes generally, um, and lower volumes specifically at the end of expiration. Uh, when you have less air in your, in your lungs, the caliper size of your airways gets smaller which increases airway resistance. So they have to work a little bit harder to generate, you know, enough pressure to bring air into the lungs, basically. Okay. The other side is we find that if they have, you know, again, a lot, a larger abdomen because of the additional adipose tissue, uh, that can potentially impair the length tension relationship of the respiratory muscles. Like they may not be able to generate enough force because there's more stuff basically in the way. Um, the other side is we're finding that there may be changes to uh, excitatory flow or um, basically the, air, the smaller airways are smaller and there may be higher resistance in the larger airways too for, for a lot of different reasons. Maybe infl- inflammatory changes, airway reactivity changes, um, and we think, you know, you guys are probably, are you guys familiar with adipokines or myokines or like the, the factors? So your adipose tissue is a very active tissue, right? It releases these factors that have autocrine, endocrine, and paracrine functions. So autocrine, they can act upon themselves. Paracrine, they can act on tissues neighboring to them. And an endocrine, if they get into the bloodstream, they can affect tissue everywhere, right? Um, and pretty much every substance in our bodies kind of muscles that way too myokines you all know those right um but 
adipokines or you know some of them can be pro-inflammatory especially in this in the in the state of obesity but there's too many of them it's too much obesity too much white adipose tissue um and they have very deleterious effects on blood vessel function um and muscle function um affecting contractile properties um we also see changes to uh, igf1 uh, myostatin um, which can affect the hypertrophic response to exercise, to, to training. So um, we see lower testosterone too in obesity as well. So not only do patients with obesity have higher demand because of those smaller airways, higher airway resistance, um, they the muscles may be affected um, intrinsically and extrinsically. So their force generating capacity is lower and their demand is a little bit higher, which may explain why during exercise or even minimal activity, they get short of breath um, a, lot, a lot earlier than you know, a healthier, or healthier individual or leaner individual. So the problem is like there's a lot more obese people, right? We want them to exercise, but if you get short of breath from like walking two blocks, like how effective is exercise going to be for you as a solution? Um, and for weight loss, uh, resistance training, like which, which doesn't have as high of a demand, is probably not as effective. It'll it'll be effective to a degree, but we want them engaging in more long-term, continuous aerobic work if possible, or maybe interval work. But either way, just getting them going can be kind of challenging. We also see some changes during responses to exercise as well. Um, so basically, what my study is doing is we're looking at how those breathing muscles are affected, um, looking how inflammation may affect that. Because uh, we've we've identified this relationship between inflammation and respiratory muscle performance in patients with sepsis and patients with um, uh, heart failure, COPD, and in a mouse models of obesity and diabetes. We haven't done it in a human model. So this is my study will may answer some questions along that line. And they were looking at how respiratory muscle training using one of these devices here, which is a pressure device, a pressure threshold device, um, how that will improve it, how that may affect their responses, exercise, um, and, and tolerance, uh, their, their perceived perceptions of dyspnea, as well as post-operative complications. Um, obese individuals are harder to wean after mechanical ventilation, um, which you're on during surgery. So um, that may, we are seeing that that offsets that risk a little bit too. Um, so it's a it's a it's a pretty ambitious project for a dissertation, um, but you know, go big or go home, I guess. So yeah, I don't know if that was way too 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 wild or not. No, but, that, that was great. Um, yeah, respiratory muscle training. In yeah. going back to some of the myths potentially, where oh yeah, you know, it's all about the diaphragm, and in fact, we can even uh, assess the function of your left and right. Kura and and left and right side. I'm not saying these are these are the kind of the the things that we hear. Oh, and that's that's a that's a new one. When you oh yeah, <laughs> your left your left diaphragm is probably inhibited right now, Rich. You just don't know it because you haven't been into my office yet. But you know what's funny? There was a paper that was published in JOSPT back in 2013. Uh, Nate Hillier was on that paper. We did we did talk together at CSM 2017. And, uh, yeah, there are patients sometimes who are completely asymptomatic, um, at rest who have a hemodiaphragm. Half the diaphragm doesn't work. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, he assess, he, can, assess, 
he assessed B-mold ultrasound and M-mold ultrasound, looking at diaphragmatic movement, trying to get some normative values for like what that is with ultrasound. And uh, he was asymptomatic patients. And he there were, I think there were a couple patients in his sample that were you know, had no pulmonary disease, no symptoms, and uh, their hemi, one hemi of diaphragm didn't move at all. Whoa! And and they found that diaphragm motion in healthy individuals is variable. It like it's so yeah. There's and then and that's a that's a PT that's open access. So it's like you don't have to make these things up. It's like it's there. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't want to dive down that rabbit hole too too far, but there. We could take that a few different ways because there may be some people listening now that are like, ha, see, gotcha. hemidiaphragm paralysis. We, that's something we can do about where maybe the other flip side is perhaps it's just normal human variability. We just don't know because we haven't really found that those base rates it could, you know, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I, one, the evidence suggests one, that patterns of breathing are very, very variable and across a human population. That's why I'm not super like big on like feeling touch like that. What are you, what, what are you doing there? Right. You're wasting time. Um, and, you know, if it works for them, like if you're if you don't have blood gas changes, which I, you know, probably not going to happen in a healthy individual for a lot of reasons, probably fine. Right. Um, two, um, like the hemodiaphragm in that example, it just shows that. Yeah, it's probably a lot more complicated than we realize. And that was assessed through using ultrasound. That wasn't assessed by arbitrarily feeling your hands. Like how how can you, you can't see the respiratory muscles, right? Like you can't see them without visualizing them with an ultrasound or fluoroscope. So I don't know what people are claiming to do with these other assessments, but would you yeah. would you be able to feel inflation differences if you had a a left hemidiaphragm or a right hemidiaphragm that was you think maybe maybe um but again that person was walking around and didn't even know it i think yeah so like and i think and there's another case that it was published a couple a couple years ago by kahalen um with a uh, a rugby player who sustained a neck injury and he was asymptomatic but like as he continued on and got older and was still continuing to exercise started noticing that he had like breathlessness and like they found actually he had a hemidiaphragm only only one work uh so it's probably individualized but like again like if, if you unless you don't stress the system to a certain point you're probably not going to notice you know and um there are some conditions like post polio where we see like changes potentially to respiratory muscles and we see like an, an um what we call um paradoxical movement like your chest wall and your abdomen don't move in sync because your abdomen and chest wall should move together um, but those are rare examples and we haven't had polio in the United States in what, 50 years, right? 50 years, something like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question or not, but yeah, yeah it's, totally. So it's, when well, you s- go ahead, John, and just, just to repeat there there was ultrasound used to make these assessments, not putting your hands on somebody's stomach and, or watching them breathe. This isn't something that you can just kind of clinically do nonchalantly. Yeah. And you could, and it is, we can do ultrasound too. Like we can, right? Like that's something that blows my mind. Like, you know, John brought up a good point that like, you can't, can't just feel these things, right? Like it's probably not going to be as effective as looking at them. And PTs can do ultrasound that or, or can do neuromuscular ultrasound. We do it for the TA, 
right? That's a big thing now, right? With like making sure you're bracing all these other things. And we do it for a cross-sectional area for muscle function. People are doing it now for dry needling, right? They're doing like, like ultrasound guided dry needling. Just move, just move that, just move that ultrasound probe a little bit further up seventh or eighth intercostal space. You're good to go. It's real simple. And I actually have a call after our podcast, a guy from England, uh, Simon Hayward. We're, we're hoping to kind of bring a course here to train train PTs on how to do it. So oh, super cool. easy to do. Yeah. So re- respiratory muscle training for you, what does yeah. that mean exactly? Obviously, the diaphragm yeah, so, is implicated there, but. Yeah. Yeah. So respiratory muscle training, um, it's evolved over time. Um Primarily, we use these devices called threshold devices, which um, are set to a pressure, uh, which you can kind of adjust by you know screwing this thing up or screwing it down. And there's a plunger attached to this die or this whoop, attached to this uh, spring, spring loaded. And basically, you have to breathe in um, enough pressure to open the valve to let air to flow into the device. Um, and you just do that kind of repeatedly you can you can use lower loads and higher volumes for endurance you can use higher loads and lower loads for strength maybe strength's an issue um and you can determine whether strength or endurance is an issue from testing you know is there max pressure an issue you know is that really weak or do they have enough pressure but do they fatigue out if we put them on an endurance test um so you can you know just like you do with any other muscle right like you, you test and then assess, and then you intervene. It's the same kind of thing. And really, they're really easy to do. Like, I train PT students how to do this. Um, and they all know how to do it. Um, and again, why those approaches are useful is that it's, you know, it's fairly specific. We can adjust the, the dosage to the, you know, to the millimeter or centimeter of water. Um, it doesn't just train the diaphragm, too. Like, it trains the intercostals a little bit as well, or any muscle that's contributing to breathing. Um, but primarily a diaphragm is, is going to be the bigger one, right? Obviously it's like 75% of the breathing effort. Um, and the great thing for patients with like obesity or heart failure, um, is that you can, you, you do it seated, right? Like you don't have to move around to do it. So pretty, con- pretty convenient. It has pretty good evidence to suggest it improves exercise capacity, has pretty good evidence to suggest that it reduces dyspnea. So the way we view it now is it's a primer for exercise. So getting patients to do this maybe for four to six weeks, um, reduce that shortness of breath, make those breathing muscles more efficient, and then transition them into traditional exercise, right? You know, to kind of get them to be more active. So it's a nice starting point in some respects. Um, reason why people like these devices is it's a set pressure. Um, it's very specific. Because if you use a resistance device, which is like if you just like have someone breathe through a smaller hole, which would increase resistance, um, but that's dependent on airflow. So you have to have the same airflow in to make sure that resistance is consistent. And as you guys know, right, like you, if you're training someone, you want to make sure the load you're imposing on them is the load you determine to impose on them. Right. So uh, humans cannot maintain airflow breath to breath consistently unless they're um anesthetized and hooked up to a mechanical ventilation mechanical ventilator it's it's next to impossible animals can do it um similar thing but yeah humans is very difficult to maintain exact airflow breath to breath so 
these are useful because I know this is going to be 25 centimeters of water, no matter how fast or how 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 slow you breathe in. So it's, it's a very specific training load. There's other devices out there that um, track your pressure. So they use a resistance port. Um, they make a, a smaller, uh, you know, um, um, hole to breathe in, but you track their, their pressure generation over time. So again, you can see, are they staying at the training load you want them at? Um, I know there's things, some things out there people breathe through a straw or breathe through like a, those Bane masks. Again, like one, you're not breathing at altitude. Like that's, that's, that's complete nonsense. And two, yeah, they might be respiratory muscle trainers because you're making it harder to breathe in against, but like it's not, it's so variable that you're probably better off just using one of these. And these are like $35. Or I actually, I think they're, they were on sale this past week for $25. Mm. Super cheap. Um, and again, PTs can do this. PTs around the world, like Brazil and England, other countries, this is pretty common actually. Um, but why we don't use this more often in, P- in PT practice, like I don't, in America, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get, um, I don't get it. And Rich is actually holding up the device. If he, so this is, this will go on YouTube. If you want to see what he's, what he's talking about, what's the, is there a brand on that specifically? Uh, uh I think Phillips makes this. Yeah. Phillips Respironics. Uh, but it's got a threshold respiratory muscle trainer. And again, threshold is the pressure threshold. Um, that's why it's called a threshold trainer. Cause it's a set pressure that you have to, a, a set threshold of pressure you have to op- overcome per breath. Um, and we're finding too that like maybe this even helps with sleep quality in obese individuals because I think maybe respiratory muscle function. There's a great paper, Doug Seals out of Colorado published some stuff. We're hoping to look at a little bit of that in our population too. How does sleep or how does sleep quality improve with respiratory muscle training? Um, is it linked to certain characteristics of the muscle? So it's yeah, it's fascinating stuff. There's also and it's so so easy to do. So easy to do. People also use balloons. Yeah, yeah. Pop, pop some balloons. But here. you wouldn't yeah. get, yeah. But you don't get resistance on the way in, so it's like it's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> What's the claim? I don't understand. What is the claim with the, the, you have to like breathe in and hold the balloon, right? You uh, you breathe in, so you don't breathe in the air in the balloon. You breathe in through your nose. You kind of you know cut the glottis off, so you're just breathing in through your nose, and then you exhale through the balloon. So it's it's pressure, it's resistance against the exhalation, and then you hold. The ex- and then you breathe in through your nose and then you push out into the balloon again. And so the balloon stays constant. It's just inflates, stays constant, you breathe in, and then it inflates, stays constant, you breathe in, inflates. There's no resistance. Only in the exhalation because of the balloon, not the inhalation. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, the different levels of balloons. Yeah. There are. I do. I know this only because I've been working with a patient who, who does this professionally. Like not not breathe into balloons. Well, I guess she does. She does like balloon shows. She makes like wow. gigantic things made out of balloons professionally, which is kind of awesome. And she's also like a world record holder. Um, that's a thing. So yeah, because I'm working with her, I know there are different balloons and different resistances that go along with it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense too, because you would probably want a stronger balloon to do different things, like right, like to tie it and twist it and stuff like that. That makes sense. Rich, uh, do you think yeah. that 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 pressure trainer would be beneficial for somebody who doesn't have a respiratory disorder or is not obese? 
if, yeah. if we're talking about from a performance perspective or something like that? Yeah, there, there was a there's a paper. Um, and the, the interesting thing is um, a couple things. The more fit you are, especially if you're able to train like above or at your vegetatory threshold, um, your respiratory muscle performance tends to get better, right? Because you use them more often, right? Um, and you've got a pretty wide reserve, even if you have like deficits in strength, like because the the amount of pressure you need to generate to bring in a normal breath is like minimal, very very small amount, and that, which is good because like you don't want to be working at like eighty percent of your max to breathe in a you know perform a very vital function, right? It's, you know, so um, now there is some stuff out there that suggests maybe for like elite level athletes um, using uh, this type of training might, might engender some benefits, um, performance and be very marginal. Uh, so I don't think it should ever replace any, any traditional training, whether it's, you know, speed, power, agility, any of those things, but maybe it's a nice adjunct, um, to do, and maybe, and again, like, and to do it the right way as well. So, um, finding if they have a weakness and addressing it. So maybe, you know, but I don't think categorically, you know, carte blanche for everybody, you know, but only in someone who maybe has a weakness. There was a study out of Brazil, which did it in like volleyball players and soccer players and saw some small marginal improvements. Um, but yeah, it's going to be one of those limited marginal gains, but, but in elite athletes, sometimes that can make, you know, that can be the difference, right? Um, cause what we're finding is, uh, this, one of the primary ways this, this approach to training or why the diaphragm might be a limit. So I don't know if you guys are aware, you probably learned this back in like undergrad physiology or PT school physiology. There's a reflex in the respiratory muscles called uh, the respiratory muscle metaboreflex, um, which basically what it does, your respiratory muscle is like a very important muscle to your body. Um, when it fatigues or builds up enough metabolites from fatigue, um, it you know signals that it needs more blood flow. And it sends up signals, afferents through the vagus nerve and other, or sorry, the phrenic nerve, through the phrenic nerve, um, and causes vasoconstriction in the periphery and the shunt blow out to the respiratory muscles. Basically, it, it steals blood flow. And that can lead to leg fatigue and cramping. And that's like, that's one of the mechanisms for exercise intolerance in patients of heart failure, probably obesity and like other lung conditions. In humans, uh, that probably doesn't happen except at super normal intensities of exercise. We're talking to like 75 mils per kg, like super high VO2s, right? Very high. Um, so maybe for someone who trains at um, that high intensity, like rock climbers who are just constantly just killing themselves climbing up or like a super elite, you know, athlete, uh, maybe in some, like hockey players would, might be a, might be a good example because they, they train pretty close to their, their peak for brief, brief bouts. Uh, so maybe for them that might be a benefit, but you have to assess it. So I think in some some sports it might be useful um, in some respects. And then um, there's also some evidence for patients with asthma or exercise induced asthma that it might be a great uh, intervention for that, for reducing some of the dyspnea symptoms, um, as well as potentially improving airway resistance. There was a great paper out of Brazil a couple of years ago, which showed that uh, which was a novel finding that. Uh, inspiratory muscle training and a heart failure population resulted in a reduction in some airway resistance characteristics in the lungs and a mouse model and heart failure. But, um, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in a human model of, of, um, 
of, of asthma. So I think in some populations in athletics, it might have a, have a use, uh, but that's very, very minimal in some respects. Uh, if you're interested, there is a another theory that's been floated around that maybe as a warm-up, uh, so similar like what you do with jogging, like you do a little bit of... Um, you know, you know, or, or like before a, a sport, you do like maybe a five minute, one minute job, get your blood pumping, maybe using a device like this, right. To kind of get your blood pumping to your, your respiratory muscles. Maybe that might be effective and maybe again, more for your, um, exercise induced asthma patients or clients. So, uh, that's something we're also looking at is maybe how does a primer, of very sub threshold respiratory muscle training prior to max exercise, like how does that affect peak exercise capacity and respiratory muscle fatigue. So yeah. So there's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. A, a potentiation effect. I mean, why yeah. not? It's, it's, it's there in other, in other respects. It sounds like at least at minimum, you mentioned all the apparatuses and implements that people use for this, these things anecdotally, yeah. would you say at minimum, if you're, if you're going to do that stuff, you might as well use a device that actually quantifies these things if you're, if you're going to do it. Yeah. That, that I completely agree. Yeah. That's like, that's again, there's, there is like, there's a lot of pretty good evidence for this use. Um, use of these devices. There's, um, you know, especially in certain populations. And the crazy thing is most of the work, the really good work on these devices is, is done by PTs. Like it's, it's, it's something that is like, I don't say owned by our profession, kind of is you know the, the the leading researchers for this for respiratory muscle training are our pts um respiratory muscle physiology maybe not so much maybe it's more like physiologists and pts but like for training it's it's pts and i, I happen to know a good bit of them um and it just yeah we, we always we have conversations like man why isn't the stuff just used more often like why again why are we making up the, why are we just making stuff up you know why are people just making stuff they could use that use these things here but yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited for the webinar. I think it's yeah. going to be, it's great when we have a topic that's obviously important, but we don't, it's one of those things to get reminded on like, oh yeah, it's one of those kind of kick in the ass um, conversations. Yeah. Rich, where can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Where can they, you mentioned before, but where can they, uh, the vitals or vitals videos, all of these yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah, so the Vitals or Vitals videos, um, you can find um, either on the cardiopulmonary section website, uh, cardiopt.org slash vitals or vital. Uh, there are embedded links to um, all the YouTube videos, or if you just search for the cardiopulmonary section on YouTube, they're all on there as well directly. So you can just, just search for the cardiopulmonary section, the APTA, they're all there. Um, and uh, for me personally, um, and the vitals are vitals, like part of the, the cardio palm section website like that, we're going to be adding more and more resources to that too. Um, so that's, that's like the first stage of that development. Um, for me, PT reviewer, um, you can find my handle. It's the same on Facebook, facebook.com slash PT reviewer at PT reviewer on Twitter. It's at PT reviewer. And then Instagram, uh, it's at PT underscore reviewer. Someone took... Someone took PT Reviewer and they don't even use it. It's like a dead account. It's like, oh, come they're, on, man. They're waiting for a DM from you. All right, man. How much you want? How much you want? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so the, but I, it, 
yeah. So it's P- and ptreviewer.com um, or rich at ptreviewer.com if you want to email me directly. Um, but yeah, yeah. Awesome. I think people are really going to get a lot out of this web- uh, podcast and I think they're going to get a ton out of the webinar. Thank you so much for coming on and talking yeah, to us about me, this. Guys. Yeah. And I, again, like I think, you know, a lot of some of these issues, you know, with some of these narratives and, and myths really in the profession, like go back to, um, these kind of conversations not happening, right? Like, you know, people crossing the bridge. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a sports PT, you know, I, I'm not, I don't work with a lot of athletes, but you know, I think there's skills and knowledge in, in my area of practice that are relevant. And I think it's the same for athletes relevant to our approaches to athletic performance are relevant to, you know, cardiopulmonary practice. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm really, really thankful for you guys inviting me on this podcast for sure. Well, and I think that's the key. This is relevant to no matter who you're working with. Obviously, this is relevant. They have a heart and they have lungs to, you know, mostly. And it's, I think we can just redirect the ship a little bit. If we're already talking yeah. about, about cardiovascular function and respiratory function, we can, we can just steer the ship maybe towards a little bit more truth and accuracy. And I think, I think people, you know, will take that well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Rich. This has been great. We look forward to the, the webinar. Yeah. Thanks, man. And I'm looking forward to enjoying the, the California sunshine. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Thanks guys. Jared, John, as always. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. That's great. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see everybody soon.